0: Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go Beyond the Benchmark, delving into current topics, affecting markets, economies, and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at FGAM.com. Repeat that, beyond at FGAM.com. On the podcast today, we have uh, Jason Jay. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jason Jay, or Jason is one of the future leaders panelists. He's um, um, currently at uh, MIT Sloan, um, helping and um, helping us to kind of navigate the uh, ESG landscape. Um, and obviously, educating us, educating our clients and, and educating the, the world with respect to um, you know, ESG matters, be it investing, psychology of investing, or indeed um, you know, important initiatives such as you know, climate change and, and how that should be um, influenced uh, in the future. So um, we will call Jason now. Hi, Jason. Um, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. Thanks, Martin. This is beyond the benchmark. So typically, when uh, we start these conversations, uh, we always try to delve in a little bit more into uh, into the background, the history of uh, of the people that come on to the podcast. Uh, but um, I wanted to start really with Jason, the person. So you know, tell us about yourself, your background. You know, where did you start your career?
1: Sure. Um, so let's see. Where should I start? Um, I. Was I won't tell my whole life story, but I'll say one thing, which is that um, I, I was born in uh, Boulder, Colorado, in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, where you're sort of considered a wacko if you're not an environmentalist of some kind. Um, and I, my parents were building a business in the um, medical products industry, preventing uh, the worst health consequences of uh, paraplegia. And, um, and so I had this sort of notion that business could be a force for good in the world. Um, and that there were big problems to solve. And those um, sort of seeds that were planted kind of started to bear fruit in around 2005 when I had been, um, I started a dot-com company, I'd been a management consultant, and I started to just really ask my questions about what are, what is this all for? What are, what are we educating people for? What are we building these technologies for? What What are the big problems to solve in the world? And that led me to started to work on sustainability. Um, and I came to MIT uh, as initially as a PhD student um, to work on these questions um, at the Sloan School of Management on how to tackle sustainability from a management and from a business perspective. And took over, when I finished in 2010, um, the emerging MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative. Um, and so for the last 10 years, <clears throat> I've been uh, teaching courses on strategy, Uh, leadership and innovation for sustainable business at MIT and um, which includes supervising um, dozens of student team projects, working with companies and uh, and as as well as doing, you know, a a bunch of work with um, specific enterprises outside of the MIT context. Um, And over the last couple of years, you know, when we first were when I was first delving into this territory, The people, the sort of drivers of the conversation about sustainability were um, kind of people inside companies who were advocating for energy efficiency and better labor standards. And they saw sort of the possibility of creating business value through sustainability, um, as well as NGOs and activists and others who were pushing and nudging companies to be more engaged on topics like climate change and what um what really I, I sort of see happened is that there was a there's been some really important success in the in those in that period of those folks um showing the business case for sustainability and it's in a way that's caught the attention of CFOs investors um within my context um finance and economics faculty um who are saying okay this is really interesting this sustainability stuff, this environmental, social, and governance components of business performance, what we call ESG now, um, are really indicators of long-term performance and health of companies. Um, They're indicators of good management. Um, They're important issues in their own right for the health of our broader economies and societies. And so this needs to be integrated into the way that we do finance and investment. Um, And so all of a sudden, I was in conversation with um, people in the finance field that I hadn't been before. um, And, uh, you know, had gotten myself up to speed as well as I can. So there's kind of an important caveat, which is I didn't grow up as a financial analyst or a quant economics um, type person. um, But, um, but as the field has evolved, it's gotten sort of more and more quantitative and more and more connected to the capital markets. And I just see that as fantastic trends for everybody involved. So um, have now been throwing myself into a few different um, finance and sustainability related uh, projects at MIT, um, including one that's based around improving measurement uh, of ESG factors um, led by one of my colleagues, Roberto Rigobon, um, a project for high net worth families on architecting a, a coherent social impact strategy across Investments philanthropy, operating companies and other domains and um, and then specifically on the issue of climate change, l- using modeling and simulation tools to help investors identify what are the really high leverage um, moves to make with respect to capital to have an impact on the decarbonization of the economy and um, and my involvement in all these fields um, led me to EFG where I'm now part of the future leaders panel and um, and that's been tremendous fun and and great to engage with you and your team.
0: Yeah, no, it's your your input has been um, you know, have been amazing and certainly has helped us to sort of shape our ESG credentials. Certainly over the last few years and and obviously one of the key things around ESG it's uh, it's continuous. You know, because we're still relatively early in in um, uh, in in ESG investing. Uh, although I. Yeah, I, uh, I think I reminded you that I actually did my MBA thesis in the '90s on uh, ESG God. investing, <laughs> and uh, yes. I, I think I made a prediction at the time that um, uh, that this was going to be important. But it, it took about twenty years <laughs> for it to yes. really start to, to take off.
1: No, it's great, and it's it's very interesting. I think people have had all kinds of different projections about where things might go. Um, You know, on on all kinds of indicators from the price of solar and the adoption of that particular technology to the growth of ESG investing to um, the growth of, uh, you know, sort of collective action organizations uh, like the UN Global Compact. And all of those things, I think, have grown faster. Um, You know, like exponentials, they grow slow in the beginning and then really fast, uh, faster than you anticipate. So, um
0: obviously from an investment perspective um you know, what are the sort of um the you know the I, I guess the important psychologies of uh of esg investing you know they uh, you know you, you've done some some great work certainly helping us to understand the the psychology or the behavioral attributes of of esg uh, do you want to take us through your your thinking on that
1: Sure. Um, I mean, and, and you know, the, again, the caveat, an ca- important caveat here, which is just that I think there's so much more that we don't know yet about um, the psychology of sustainable investing. And for, for investors, what are the priorities, the motivations, um, and kind of how, what people really want out of this whole ESG investing um, phenomenon. But my rough observation is that, I've noticed that there are these kind of three different psychologies of sustainable investing, um, sort of, which are, I I sort of see as sort of different patterns of motivation and, um, what data you pay attention to and what actions you take. So there's one psychology of sustainable investing, which is what I call kind of the, the moral purity, um, notion, which is that, you know, I look at the world, I judge that certain things are not in line with my values. Um, you know, I'm worried about climate change. I don't like fossil fuels. I'm worried about violence. I don't like guns and weapons. I'm worried about public health. I don't like um, cigarettes, alcohol, or maybe even sugar intensive um, uh, beverages. And And so as a result, I don't want my money touching those things. I don't want my portfolio to be contaminated with this thing that I see as morally wrong and um and so what i want to do is i want to and, and i don't want my fate to be tied to the success of those companies and so what i do is i try to divest and i try to um, limit or constrain the universe in which i'm operating and this is you know the one of the fr- sort of the early waves of work on on investing was around socially responsible investing or sri and a lot of that involved this kind of negative screening, where you um, you know you take out sort of sin stocks, however you define that, from your portfolio. And we still see that as an important kind of psychology behind sustainable investing: is that people want to, um, you know, uh, divest of fossil fuels, divest of these things that they're concerned about. Um, and and I think that is a um that is every investor's right to define those values and to define those concerns and to have their to be participating in the companies that they believe in um, and not participating in the companies they don't believe in um, there's a second piece though which is that um th- which is that the, cons- the the problem with that moral purity approach to investing is that um is that it actually removes your ability to have an influence on the companies and sectors where you might want to see change. So, for example, I mentioned this idea of being concerned about the climate and um, wanting to see movement away from carbon intensive fuels. Well, one way I can do that is by divesting of fossil fuel companies the problem with that is that in a big, in a if these are publicly traded stocks in a liquid capital market, when I sell those stocks, somebody else is buying them. It's very difficult for those moves to have an effect on the price, and um, and let alone on management behavior. Um, whereas if I own those stocks and I have some governance rights by virtue of being a shareholder, then I might be able to make change. And so there's this. There's another kind of psychology, which is sort of go into the messy places and, um, and, 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 and try to make change. And I see this as kind of like an activist style, of an activist psychology of investing. So there's this great example of this group of nuns um, with a sort of religious organization's pension fund in the, in the um, Washington state area in the U.S., who had traditionally, you know, might have approached it from that sin stocks perspective, <clears throat> and instead, what they did is they started buying stocks of the gun companies, and um, and and then they created a shareholder campaign where they joined forces with Vanguard, BlackRock, some of the really big asset managers, and um, and they used their governance powers to persuade the gun companies to start measuring and monitoring. The number of people who are killed each year by their weapons, um, as a move toward having greater accountability for violence in society, and that—that's a—that's a different psychology. It's a different orientation. It's one where you're looking to really have impact through your investments. Um, and there's a, a number of other channels besides um, shareholder engagement. You know, going and directly investing in communities that um, have been historically left out of capital markets um, you know, through micro-lending and things like that. So there's a kind of, go, again, go into the messy places and try to make change type of orientation. Um, and then there's a third one that goes to what I was saying earlier about there is really a business case for sustainability, which is, um, all right, let's say that the world is moving in those two directions of moral purity and activism. And that that um, that that's happening um, among customers, um, among employees, um, a millennial generation who wants to work for purpose-driven companies that are aligned with their values, um, and um, and there are just some win wins to be had where um, where if I save energy, I can save money. If I Um, engage with my employees in a more constructive way. I might get more productivity and lower turnover, lower shrink in retail. And so actually there's just good business reasons for doing all these things. And so I might want to use ESG factors um, as a leading indicator of firm performance of portfolio performance. And, um, and then I might not take an absolute stance where I'm avoiding all fossil fuel companies but i might underweight fossil fuel companies relative to renewable energy companies um, if i thought that that's where the ball is going and that's where um there's going to be more money to be made as our electricity systems transition to lower carbon energy sources and so that's kind of that psychology is the sort of investment optimization kind of psychology of let's look for where this esg information has a signal in it about about financial performance particularly over the long term medium to long term and let's um and let's follow that signal so that then my portfolio will do better as the world changes and i will be rewarded as the world improves um even if i'm not sort of taking a strong moral stand um, or a strong activist stand like those other psychologies and and the reality is that all of us probably blend a little bit of each of these psychologies certainly in a high net worth family, you'll have different people who are going to sort of advocate for these different perspectives or, or points of view or approaches. Um, and everybody has to, as, as well as in the board of a pension fund or a um, endowment or sovereign wealth fund. And so part of what we have to get good at is being able to notice which of these paradigms we're operating from and then get clear and articulate about what our strategies are. And then create kind of portfolios and execution strategies that really allow us to achieve our full set of investment goals, our holistic set of investment goals that include wealth stewardship and advancement on the issues that we care about.
0: So, um, you know, within that kind of, I guess that construct or those three, um, you know, three, three psychologies, uh, the environmental one, I guess is, you know very well understood actually um you know I think the first thing the first thing you say to anybody uh, you know that you're you're putting an ESG portfolio together the, the environmental bit is the first thing they actually think about um uh, given you know the huge amount of um you know press and coverage that that particular topic has got you know over the last uh certainly over the last you know five five years or so um one of the areas that we often you know uh, overlook is the governance part um which um you know arguably from a from an investor's perspective is actually probably one of the most important ones and certainly we've had you know some high profile you know failures from a governor's perspective you know, certainly with, um, you know, I, I guess the, the most obvious one, was most recently, is probably WeWork, and the shenanigans yes. they were going on there. Um, yes. the, the, um, you know, obviously there's been, you know, the obvious one. People think, well, you know, the technology companies are usually the better ones, yes. you know, and mm-hmm. that's the the one that people think about most because they. Environmentally they're pretty good, right so but the governance piece they're actually not particularly good when you start peeling the onion a bit um, mm-hmm. and um, you know one that obviously comes up is like dual class stock listings and and obviously Zuckerberg and Facebook as being one of the kind of hope high profile uh, exponents of this. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I will say that within ESG, I personally have looked a lot more into the E and S factors than I have into the G factors. So I would say that I'm probably part of that larger picture that you're describing. Um, uh, a couple of comments I'll make about governance. I mean, one is that um, I think that these 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 governance issues are really critical and... Um, Measurement of good governance is a a very tricky thing to do. Um, A lot of, you know, rating agency, ESG rating agencies that are trying to score companies on environmental, social and governance factors, they're going to look at characteristics of governance that are easily measurable. Um, You know, things like formal role separation of, you know, CEO and chairman roles or, um, the diversity of boards from a uh, demographic perspective, and those things are you know pro- are quite important and quite relevant. And there's just a lot of subtleties to governance that are uh, about you know what is the predisposition for ethical versus unethical behavior among a community of human beings in an organization, right? I mean, I think ultimately. That's what we're trying to do when we're doing governance measurement and management in a portfolio setting is we're trying to just say, anticipate what's the likelihood that this company is going to do something that really compromises the interests of a key stakeholder, um, including shareholders. And that is, you know, by larger standards, unethical. And um, those are, you know, there are some very subtle factors about the culture of an organization that make that tricky to observe and measure in a simple way. So, you know, I'll just give an example of like whistleblowers, right? Whistleblowers are critical. A whistleblower policy is kind of a key part of what people will say is good governance. But a policy and enactment are totally different, right? Anyone in an organization that has a whistleblower policy and who sees something they don't like and is going to start to think about being a whistleblower, they're not just going to look at is there an official policy on the books? They're going to look at what's the track record of the last three people who raised their voice, you know, were they fired, sidelined, passed up for promotion, ostracized by their peers, um, or, um, you know, were they, uh, you know, and, 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 and that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do because in fact, if you have a good whistleblower policy, the identity of those people is going to be invisible, um, in many cases. So, yeah. You know, I think it requires some real intimacy with the culture of an organization to be able to understand governance in the way that we would want to from an ESG perspective.
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think that subtlety is actually really quite hard to to just copy paste, if you like. I think each company is going to have you know its own uniqueness that that uh, you need to kind of you know delve into. I, I think that's a you know very very, very you know very important point. Uh, Going back to the the measurement, um, obviously governance, um, as you've said, you know, easy ones are, you know, diversity and and so and so forth. Um, What about the other parts in terms of kind of measurement? Obviously, there's been a huge amount of databases that have been, you know, creative at EFG. uh, You know, we use, uh, you know, Refinitiv and and, and a few other guys. What is the... um, you know how is that data collection, you know, coming along? Because obviously, uh-huh. from a from um you know ESG perspective or investing perspective, garbage in, garbage out, right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. you know, what are your thoughts about that?
1: I mean, I am I am very strongly influenced by my colleagues on this. Um, Florian Berg, uh, Julian Koble and Roberto Rigobon have a paper that's called aggregate confusion. Um, it's a working paper being submitted for, for peer-reviewed journals right now but it's it is one of the most downloaded papers in in the SSRN social science research network and what they did was that they looked at um, the main rating agencies for ESG factors and they and they got access to all the underlying data and then they looked at um, you know the degree to which, when the same when two different rating agencies are rating the same company to what extent do they agree um you know when s&p and moodys goes to rate the creditworthiness of a company um they're 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 pretty aligned that correlation is in the sort of 0.97 to 0.99 kind of range um in the ESG space the correlations are you know more like 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 i mean very very low and in some cases anti-correlated if you look in the in a deeper level so you'll have one you know on on a factor um like corporate lobbying you'll see one com- the same company being rated top quartile by one and then bottom quartile by another so there's tremendous divergence um between the different rating agencies that have to do with differences in the way that they're measuring these phenomena. um, And then also differences in when they go to combine those measures into a composite ESG score of some kind, um, how they go about doing that um, sort of weighting, prioritization, which factors they include, they don't include. And so you see this very messy landscape of, um, of disagreement among uh, people trying to do ESG measurements. And this is a big problem for the field. Um, it means that the things that are measured more noise in a more noisy way, um, there's no way that we're going to be able to use those as signals to guide investment from a financial standpoint. Um, because the correlation with a uh, you know a, a factor with high variance is, is likely to be low. Um, and um, and, it, and it just becomes hard to sort of strategically know what to do as, a, as an investor, as a investor manager. So there's a lot of improvement that needs to happen. And it's one of the things that we're doing at MIT Sloan with Roberto's um, aggregate confusion project now is to try to improve the quality of measurement. And um, I think that there are some domains in which the rating agencies are aligned and the measurement methodologies are relatively consistent. Um, and where people have harmonized around particular measurement techniques so for example scope one and two emissions of greenhouse gases which means you know how much greenhouse gas does a company emit from its direct operations and its electricity use that is starting to converge the cdp which is an organization that aggregates that data um, you know monitors and tracks it across a lot of companies in the world and um, and that's where we see relatively more alignment but around some really important factors, um, there's there's lack of alignment, um, or there's apparent alignment that actually isn't super high quality. So, for example, there's a lot of alignment around measuring the um, gender diversity of a board, but if you really want to understand how well women are treated in an organization this is something that roberto Rigobon has pointed out a lot is that we don't the treatment of women is one of those more day-to-day subtle cultural factors like the whistle you know the treatment of whistleblowers that um that you need some more granularity to understand so there may be sort of false consensus in some ways or or consensus around uh poor indicators um and then there's some things where you know the way if if you're really concerned about um businesses impact in the world one of the most important channels for that impact is how companies interact with governments and what is their public policy influence are they influencing policy in a way that captures rents for themselves um, or in a way that helps internalize externalities and improve markets for everyone and we do not we hardly measure that at all almost none of the rating agencies even have a, a, a factor on that and um, there's very little data and transparency about it, so we're we're at the beginning of a very long road, and and um, it worries me because there are a lot of assets moving into the ESG space, but it's being built on a somewhat shaky foundation um, in terms of the rigor and quality of the data.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's yeah. a that's an absolute you know fantastic yes. point because I think the conventional wisdom from an investing standpoint is that you can buy some of these data you know, databases, screen out the stocks you can't buy, um, if you like, and you have various policies. But if you're, you know, if your measurement is just wrong, you know, you're, you're not really, not, really not gonna have much impact. Um, obviously, one of the things that you've helped us at the at EFG is, is to kind of think of, think about it in a slightly different way. You know, clearly you do need the measurement a piece, i.e. data, Collection to be able to make a if you like initial assessment. One of the things that you've helped us with is uh, the qualitative aspects, uh, which um, obviously we we you know we started that journey a few years ago. We've really refined and you know and as I said continues to refine. You know recently you uh, spent some time with us and the investment team on on trying to figure out where the holes might be, which is which was great. Any thoughts about? You know the future certainly for you know a company like ourselves, the the quantum qual thing is very important, but actually the qualitative aspects are actually you know very, very important.
1: yeah I mean it, it's it, it, it was very interesting to look at to look with you guys at you know what are the questions that you actually ask managers. When you get a chance to talk to them, because you are a significant shareholder, right, um, or or you manage assets that are um, manage assets that are significant um, com- uh, shareholders, and um, and you know there's there there's something that can happen in those types of conversations that is a little harder to get at um, than with, with some of the quantitative data, so. Um, one of my favorite ones that sort of jumped off the page at me was, um, you know, when you talk to managers, do they have a good, you know, a, about ESG topics and difficulties? Um, are they able to engage with you constructively, um, non-defensively, proactively? Like, you know, what's the quality of that conversation? And I think that's incredibly revealing, especially if you're talking to senior leaders in an organization. If they're um, you know, just giving a part, a sort of canned party line, um, or they're sort of scrambling to come up with an answer, or if they're defensive um, um, about you know emerging threats or risks, um, you know, none of those are good signs, right? So, you know, being able to assess sort of the level of knowledgeability, confidence, but also humility among kind of senior leaders in the organization around these topics probably reveals a, a decent amount and. I think, you know, we have to be careful with that type of qualitative data um, to make sure that you're assessing it in a kind of a consistent way that's comparable across different uh, companies um, where you might have different levels of access. So I think how you actually use that information investment process is a little tricky, but that does allow you to get at something that, um, that is not necessarily going to show up in an ESG rating.
0: Yeah, that was that was a that's a very good point. I think what's uh, what's interesting, uh, I guess, the journey that we're going through is actually train our uh, investment teams to actually ask the question and what are sort of responses they'll get, and and obviously the more honed in that gets, the better the better the answers or, or worse the answers, if you like, and 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 the scoring that goes with it and pr- applying that consistency is obviously you're absolutely right is going to be quite key to that. Um, now, one of the things that um, um, you, you talk to us a, a lot about is this concept of kind of green bundle, which, uh, which I think, um, you know, certainly struck a chord with me in terms of how investment firms think about, um, uh, you know, ESG, you know, going forward. Do you want to articulate uh, some of your thoughts on that?
1: Sure. So. Um, The term green bundle comes from uh, Magali Delmas, um, who's a professor at University of California, Los Angeles, and has a great book by that title, um, where she reviews um, a long arc of research about consumer behavior with respect to environmentally benign products. So, um, you know, what what have we learned about sort of marketing green products, services, and behaviors in... um, you know, over the, over the last 10, 15 years. And, um, and, and the sort of overarching thesis is this notion of the green bundle, which is that people will preferentially buy more green, broadly defined, socially responsible and environmentally responsible products. They'll preferentially buy it and they'll pay a premium. Um, but only when it's kind of bundled with some other benefit that they're getting, Um, with that um, characteristic so if we think about um, uh, you know light bulbs for example Uh, an LED light bulb is um, better for the environment um, because it uses much less energy to produce the same number of lumens Um, now the benefit that I'm getting as a user there. Is not, is not just that I'm reducing my carbon footprint, it's that I'm saving money on my energy bill, for one. Second is that that light bulb, because by the nature of the technology um, and producing much less heat, lasts a lot longer, so I don't have to replace it as often. I have less hassle. Um, and in some commercial industrial settings, that's extraordinarily important when you're paying for labor to do that. Um, and, um, and so I'm getting these sort of convenient and, and the form factor of LEDs allows me to break beyond the light bulb to all kinds of interesting, um, you know, rope lighting and other, um, aesthetic formats. So I'm getting the benefit of, you know, cost reduction as in the long run, energy bill cost reduction, aesthetics and convenience. And as a result, I'm willing to pay a premium that LED bulb is going to cost a lot more than an incandescent bulb. Um, a Tesla is a car that is like a rocket ship when you hit the accelerator pedal, very high tech upgrades itself overnight. I get a lot of benefits as a driver in addition to it having the lowest CO2 per mile of any vehicle in its class. Um, and of course it's better if your grid is greener, but even without it, it's very efficient. So, um, um, so the, so the notion is that the companies that are going to be really successful, are gonna be the ones who are providing a green bundle to their customers and not just depending on what what Damas calls a dark green consumer, which is somebody who's willing to make a lot of sacrifices just to be green. Um, There there is a population um, of people who, who, who are in that vein, but in terms of reaching a mass market, um, what she calls kind of excuse makers, people who are in the middle of a bell curve of concern about the environment, um, you have to kind of knock off the excuses for why they wouldn't want a green cleaning product or a car or a you know, fair trade coffee or something else along those lines. And, um, and those excuses mean you know, offering some value to the consumer Um, and that could be an emotional value, right? You think about Tom's shoes as an example where it's, I buy a pair of shoes and then a pair of shoes is given away to somebody in an emerging market. Um, the benefit I'm getting there is kind of an emotional benefit of getting to feel good about that purchase. Um, you know, small side note, those donations can sometimes undermine the market for local shoe production in those countries. So you always want to be Credit, careful when you're thinking about those models. But I'm per, but that's sort of the notion of the green bundle. And from an investor, so there's two implications of this concept for the investor perspective. One is that when you're investing in firms, you want to invest in firms that with a sort of green thesis or an ESG thesis, you want to invest in firms that are providing the green bundle to their customers. So you're going to invest in impossible foods or beyond meat if you think it's going to genuinely be a better... Taste, nutritional, etc., experience. In addition, to, or in addition to, kind of the benefit of reduced impact from meat consumption. Um, and then there's an implication in terms of when you're choosing an invest, a financial services provider for your investing. Um, a lot of investors are probably looking for that green bundle, meaning they're looking for somebody who can both provide impact or moral purity it um in the way that i described earlier as well as other components of what it means to be a good investment manager like overperformance of the benchmarks or um or you know long-term um risk management and downside prevention or um or even just high quality high touch service that helps you to you know um Figure out your investment strategies inside a complex family um, so there there has to be some bundle that you 're providing in addition to the side of pure impact play
0: and I think that 's certainly the the direction that I think um, that certainly we 're moving i guess it 's such an early stage for for many investment management firms i I think they 're going to have a have this journey um, That they're going to go through. I've already noticed, for example, uh, you know, uh, some uh, funds, some organisations just added an ESG to their, to the name of their product or their strategy, Um, and you know, it was looks pretty much, you know, uh, a strategy that. That underperforms but by adding ESG you know it's the reason why it underperforms if you like um, you know I think um, we've you know I've certainly seen some of those you know come through and it certainly has raised my eyebrows that um, that there are going to be a lot of people just going to jump on the bandwagon um, and use some very kind of simple filtering um yeah. And uh, you know, process on on top, and that's yeah. not probably going to be good enough. Uh, you no. know, you, you, you know, it has no, to be much more than that.
1: It, and, and I think it's very important to understand when you're looking at an, a financial services company or investment manager is is, um, you know, if they are doing something like that, just putting out a simple kind of product where they're you, taking an MSCI. Data set, tilting a, a, a normal equities portfolio with it, and then calling out an ESG product and putting out it in the marketplace. Um, with, you know, I think that the question to understand that's more subtle about the intra-organizational dynamics of the uh, asset manager is is that just a it, it, are they just checking the box? Are they using that to kind of check the box and say, okay, now we're done with ESG, we don't have to worry about it anymore? Or is that a deliberate first step? pilot um, to understand the market dynamics, to test out the data sets with the intention to do more um, a deep kind of ESG integration. And um, and I think that's an open question that's hard to get to know unless you sniff around and understand what's going on inside the organization. Um, you know, I, w- what's been interesting and fun about this future leaders process is to see how the ESG um, considerations are kind of built into a broader process of stock selection alongside and kind of interwoven with these other dimensions of what you're looking at as a future leader in terms of, you know, emerging technology trends and, um, and so on. So that, um, so it becomes, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not just an add on, you are making use of these quantitative data sets, but it's, it's kind of interwoven into the process. And there's different, different firms have different intentions, and, and there are different stages in that journey. Um, and, um, and so if, 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 you know, if people are looking to get into the SG space, I think it's important to look under the hood a bit and understand how the thing
0: works. No, absolutely. I think that's uh, that, I think that's uh, that's quite key. Now, one of the challenges, um, the you know we we've discussed uh, with you as well, is is fixed income, um, yeah. and you know fixed income, certainly from an ESG perspective, is um, it's slightly counterintuitive, right? Because you know if you're a bad ESG company, for example, your yield spread would be a lot higher compared to companies that were were, were good. Uh, and implicit in that is your returns going to be higher if you if you're investing in uh, uh, you know in, in a poor ESG you know organisation. Um, very counterintuitive from a return perspective, and, and I guess you really have to sacrifice the return to to uh, uh, to feel good about yourself. You know what is the what are your thoughts on that? And you know what are the, you know how do you overcome that from a from a from an investment manager's perspective i know that's a hard question
1: it's a very hard question um and you know what i mean there are going to be real trade-offs i i i think that you know i i've sung the tune in this conversation a couple of times about you know the business case for sustainability and there's alignment with performance and you know these these funds can do quite well you know the recent results you told me about the future leaders panel were pretty impressive, um, but there are trade offs in certain places between short term financial performance and long term financial and ESG performance. And um, and we have to be able to confront those trade offs. And I, the one that you're pointing out in fixed income is, is a very important one, right? Which is that if I have a really risky investment, I'm going to get more return on it. Um, and ESG is part of that risk premium. Um, you know, I would go back to this notion of the psychology of sustainable investment here and say okay well there's actually a strategy a, a, a psychology and a strategy that involves going into the messy places right that sort of activist stance and um and so then the question becomes well if i'm going to invest in if i'm going to buy debt or bonds or you know fixed income instruments that are tied to companies with problematic you know track records. Can I have some influence on the company by virtue of being one of its creditors? Um, you know, is there is there some channel for for governance? And you know, companies don't always have. I mean, it's not like equity where you might get you know voting shares in the company, um, but there may be channels for influence on companies who. To understand that you know, if they want to get that next tranche of um, debt that they want to issue, um, they're going to need to clean up their act. Or um, you know, and I I think we're—I—I—I don't know what the best practices on this are. Honestly, Um, I think there are social responsible investment firms that have been around for a very long time, like Boston Common Asset Management, who probably tried and. Um, you know, run up against a few different of these different approaches. Breckenridge Capital here in Boston does a lot of fixed income work around sustainability, um, mostly in the, you know, issuance of sustainability bonds, green bonds, but also trying to quantify some of these risk factors of default um, related to sustainability. And I think we're, it's all you know, there's still a long way to go in figuring out what a really good mature ESG strategy looks like in fixed income, um, you know, for in part for the reasons that you describe.
0: Well, uh, certainly there's, you know, green bonds uh, initiatives that certainly, you know, are, are, are going to go at huge premiums <laughs> probably mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, well, to so premiums in terms of price and and, and low yields uh, i i something would suggest um now one of the things that um, you you discussed although um uh, you know I think this is the work is a little bit too early to kind of make uh, conclusions any, any early thoughts in terms of you know crowding so you know t- take the green bonds as a good example you know if there are only a certain amount of green bonds that are issued um, virtually everybody's going to clamor on to 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 buying those um, and um you know obviously that brings the 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 yield premium down you know quite substantially. Um, the same thing with stocks, for example, certain stocks that, that uh, we'll say are very, are very kind of green, if you like, utilities in particular, are very, very highly valued and everyone kind of jumps on them. Have you sort of, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of that crowding behavior and, um, you know, what are the kind of long term or even short term consequences of that?
1: Yeah. Um- well, I mean, I guess from a okay. So if I if I put on my hat of sustainability advocate, um, it's it's sort of good news, right? It it means that there's a lot of interest in these topics, and you know when you know Citibank commits you know x billions of dollars to green finance, and then they have to figure out some way to execute on that commitment. Um, they're going to go out and buy up every green bond that they can find, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Right. Um, and if we have, you know, there's been this exponential growth of assets that are, ES you know, uh, um, equities uh, ownership that is somehow ESG influenced or tilted. And um, as that grows, people are going to be looking, f- you know, there's, there's, there's people are going to be looking for those darling star companies. And like you said, the green, you know, kind of the more green oriented utility companies might be, you know, an example of that. And so, or Tesla, right. And, um, And so it's, very important to um, from a well and, and I would say from a from an advocacy perspective if you're trying to make change through your investments um, you know at, p- piling into those uh, those instruments is is a way of sending a market signal to the capital market saying give us more of this stuff right Um, And and create, you know, there's high demand, create more, like in any market, it's like create more supply. And so, you know, maybe that crowding will lead to more capital formation, you know, new companies being created, new instruments being invented, new issuances, um, that to kind of meet that demand, I think, you know, but in the meantime, um, you're going to be looking at this kind of supply-demand imbalance that creates these, you know, dynamics that you're describing. And then it's really important to be disciplined about valuation and just uh, trying to understand, you know, does the, um, you know, does it, does the stock price reflect where things are really going or is there sort of a wishful thinking green hype around it? Um, And that's, I, I think that's really important to look at that at a company by company deep basis, right? Like, we were talking the other day about Iberdrola, um, you know, which is a um, Spanish utility with um, that's become a kind of global provider of renewable energy and um, and kind of grid solutions, transmission distribution solutions, and um, and with an increasingly strong renewable portfolio and really you know positioning themselves to grow as the grid gets greener in the EU and in the other markets where they operate. Um, but their stock price, you know, the question is, does their stock price, and I'm not an analyst, I'm not going to make a call on that. Um, but the question to ask is, you know, all right, let's really look at the market growth potential here and how much new, um, you know, let's look at some scenarios. And if, 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 if policy were to move really aggressively and, um, and, uh, you know all the renewables that we could build in in the EU are going to get built, and they capture you know whatever percentage of market share they think they're going to get. What's that? To- uh, what's that um, top line going to mean for them? What's that upside, and what's the growth you'll see? And and maybe it, maybe that's already baked into the stock price. Um, maybe people might even be underestimating. I mean, so it's um, it, it, it takes some real careful look at the growth potential of these things from a commercial standpoint and not, again, sort of pricing things the way you, we would want them to happen in, a, to, in order to achieve, let's say, a two degree world or 1.5 degree world
0: certainly having your feet on, on 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 the ground is going to be quite important you know always yeah. reminds me of you know solar stocks you know pre-financial yeah. crisis you know uh, were, were pretty much a disastrous investment uh as we came out so uh yeah you i i think your you, your point is actually well taken um so so moving on uh, you know uh I, I guess finally to to some of the things that are you know quite in, interesting from uh Political, you know, perspective, uh, geographical perspective. You know, one of the criticisms that has been labelled by the emerging markets, in particular, is that um, that you know, ESG is very much a developed economy, very Western, you know, viewpoint, um, and in essence, all you're doing, or companies or countries, are doing is, is taking the pollution away from us or from, from them, if you like, from, from Western worlds and just dumping it to somewhere else. You know, one of the criticisms is, you know, let's, let's move all the, you know, all the coal production to, I don't know, Africa or somewhere else. Right. Uh, so, you know, our shores are clean. You know, what, what are your thoughts and, you know, what are your, what are the pushbacks you get um, you, from, from that perspective?
1: Uh, I mean, that's a really rich, complex topic. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, if I, if I take a perspective of how do we achieve the sustainable development goals? How do we make a better world? How do we create a, a sustainable and just future for our children and our grandchildren? Um, you know, the pot, what we need to do is transform our developed world economies um, and help emerging economies leapfrog the most problematic parts of industrial development. Right. So in the same way that, um, you know, in Africa, the telecommunication system really skipped landlines and kind of leapfrogged straight to mobile telephony. Um, and in fact, pioneered a lot of mobile banking and, and commerce and so on. Um, we need to see, we meaning humanity, right? We need to see emerging markets, leapfrog, um, fossil fuels and go straight to renewable energy, for example. Um, or um ideally leapfrog you know very um you know sort of sweatshop type manufacturing systems and go straight to lean production systems and um you know kind of the um the good, sort of good jobs version of that and um and so that's kind of what we'd all like that, that that's kind of what the world needs from some perspective and so then the question is well how do we get there and um and what are the things that are going to push for and against that. And there's one form of this pushback, which is, you know, hey, you know, um, you know, Winston Churchill had to confront days in the UK where, you know, you couldn't see, you know, everyone was choking on the smog in the streets of London. You guys got through that now London, the streets, you know, the air is relatively clean. We're going to have to go through that same process. Don't mess with us or, you know, while we're trying to do it. But I think that's a very cynical and actually point of view um, because it means that there's, we, we actually have the technologies to prevent that ha- human harm to human health and the environment. And we're just going to not do it so that we can follow the same footprints that somebody left a hundred years ago. Um, I don't think that argument holds too much water. Um, but, so, but then the second sort of part is, okay, well, what if those technologies are more expensive um, and so you're asking in some way emerging markets to bear a cost that um is you know uh, that's unfair to bear um, and I, I think that's a very real question and it leads you to the need for some sort of international aid and development system however what we're actually seeing is that the price of solar has has dr- has plummeted so fast, faster than any of the International Energy Agency predictions. Um, you know, part of the reason, you know, w- you know, the, the stocks aren't great because you know the low margins and everything. But um, it, it, as you were describing, but but and, and maybe you know, but but that those low prices are very good news for anyone who's trying to electrify, um, you know, parts that of 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 sub-Saharan Africa and India that have left been left behind. And so it actually may not be, you know, solar plus storage is bidding in the same price as fossil energy in some of these markets now. And so it may not actually be that much of a cost. So that's sort of the second part of this. that's quite exciting. Um, Then the third part, which is what you were saying about kind of offshoring dirty, um, dirty industries. I think we have to be really careful about that, particularly with ESG investing and with this measurement problem that I described before. So, you know, one of the things I said earlier was that one of the ESG metrics that we've converged on most effectively is scope one and two emissions, which is I look at my energy bill, I look at my electricity bill, I look at the carbon intensity of those things, and I just multiply, you know, the dollars I'm spending by the right amount, you know, the, or the kilowatts I'm consuming or the therms I'm consuming and multiply by a, a carbon factor and I know my emissions. Well, that's fine, except that scope three emissions, which are the emissions that I that aren't directly on my energy bill, but that I cause, um, there's a lot less alignment around that. And so that means that if we're measuring my sort of um, climate responsibility or climate goodness, um by my scope 1 and 2 emissions it's very easy for me to just uh, outsource those emissions and just take the business unit that's doing a lot of emitting and just sell it off or spin it off or um outsource it to a factory in in China or um or uh, or Bangladesh or Nigeria and um and then those emissions will be on their on their kind of um carbon balance sheet, um, or carbon PL, as you might might think, and um, and it looks like I'm crystal clean. And, and in fact, well, there's a lot of companies, if you look at high performers on E-factors and on climate factors, where you say, oh, you know what, if I really look at the life cycle analysis, the life cycle emissions, the embodied carbon in those products, it's actually quite intensive. They're just not being held responsible for it because their scope one and two emissions are just... You know, employees traveling to the home headquarters office. So <clears throat> I think there is this possibility of leapfrogging, and there's this possibility of leapfrogging cheaply. But um, in the meantime, we have to be really careful that we're actually holding, that we're actually doing continuous improvement. And when we see someone's emissions decline, it's not, it's because they've actually converted. A coal plant to a gas plant, or they've made their processes more energy efficient. They've really genuinely gotten more carbon productivity, as opposed to just outsourcing their emissions to some dirty player in another part of the world.
0: It's a very, uh, very full thoughtful uh, answer there, Jason. I think uh, it's it's one of those things we just need to be really w- wary about. And you know, again, digging down with management teams to like you see are they just passing on the problem to someone else, and and just recognizing that. Because it's not going to be necessarily available just in the, you know, in in the data or, or indeed the the filing. Um, so we're, we're going to wrap up, uh, Jason. Um, uh, just before I do that, uh, just uh, you know, one question uh, that uh, that uh, you know I've been uh, asking you know, all you know, a lot of the people who come on to the podcast um, is you know what advice would you give to uh, kind of any budding investment analyst or portfolio manager with respect to uh, ESG investing what should they be you know one or two things they should be doing if they really want to be you know leaders in their field
1: um it's oh, a great question i i would watch closely um the academic scholars who are trying to push the edge of our esg inquiry um and you know i would include in that this sort of, there's, you know, kind of a crowd that is crossing over between MIT Sloan and University of Zurich, um, uh, that, um, is worth watching and, um, and then, you know, people like George Seraphim at Harvard Business School, um, and his, and, and his sort of doctoral students and so on that kind of, there's a crowd there. And, you know, people are tending to release papers in, in kind of uh, working paper format, either, um, you know, on the Social Science Research Network or other places. And just, you know, keep an eye on it because there's just some very fundamental questions about ESG measurements, about the relationship between performance, about materiality, um, about sort of the nuances of how um, you know, this hurting behavior or, you know, um, uh, might affect the pricing. Um, so I'd say watch that space and have, you know, sometimes those papers are super long and boring and hard to read, but, but, but I think yield dividends in terms of being able to stay up on emerging trends. And then, um, and then, you know, get educated on the fundamentals of sustainability. I think, you know, really understanding climate change and climate action, um, is actually quite, you know, it's, it's quite a complex topic. Um, there are workshops and tools like the, um, En-ROADS climate simulation that we've developed, um, at MIT with Climate Interactive. There are, um, you know, consortia of invest of asset owners, um, and managers who are inquiring into these topics. I think being in conversation with others, being part of communities that are understanding what's going on and what's emerging. Um, And then, you know, there are a couple of good media sources. I've been finding that, um, we've been finding that the FT's Moral Money um, uh, feed and the Bloomberg Green feed are very valuable in terms of just staying on top of what's happening in the field.
0: Yeah, I've certainly seen the Bloomberg Green um, initiatives and they seem to be putting a lot of money money into uh uh into it so uh, you know yeah. certainly uh one of the sources are interesting and of course the ft as, uh, as well well jason i think we could have probably spoken for another couple of hours uh there are so many other questions i had um, okay. you know in uh you know I, I in the brief that even i sent you um uh which we didn't get a chance to go through but uh we'll absolutely love to have you on uh you know again and really sort of delve more into some of the other aspects Uh, uh, one burning question that uh, one of my uh, portfolio managers had was um, have you tried beyond meat burgers if so how would you rate them
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's a good one Um, I'm very excited about that category because um, beef production is such a significant impact on the environment in so many different ways um, yeah, and and so anyone who can who can manage to crack the alternative protein problem is 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 a hero in my eyes. Um, the I've tried the Beyond Meat Burger version one and two. Um, I you know it's it, it's fine. Um, I prefer the Impossible Burger um, that they're serving at Burger King here in the U.S. Um, I think it's a little tastier and for some reason it's a little easier on my tummy. <laughs> um, but but uh, but both of these companies are, and then and then all of the sort of cultured meat companies that are coming up behind them are working at a pretty fast clip on innovation. So I think it's like it's like an Apple operating system. You want to keep trying out the new versions to see how the product is evolving. And you know, again, is it really providing kind of that green bundle of you know taste, uh, you know, nutrition, and um, the kind of the impact that they might be able
0: to have. Well, great, thanks. Thanks very much for answering that one though. Uh, you make Sam happy. <laughs> that's a good one, that's a good one. <laughs> well, Jason, thank you very much again. And uh, as I said, we'll have you on again. And uh, you know, uh, thanks very much for you know inputting uh, into the Future Leaders panel, uh, into into what we're doing. Uh, I think it's been you know, very helpful and uh, hopefully we got some of that across uh, today as well.
1: Cool, it's good to be with you.
0: So that was a fascinating conversation uh, with Jason. Um, certainly, whenever I get to spend time with Jason, there's a, f- a few more things that uh, I hadn't thought about before. And certainly, I, I hope that you um, that you learned something new during that conversation. Again, very interesting. Uh, there are many other questions I had. For example, you know, does COVID-19 uh, accelerate? ESG investing right now, or, or does it, uh, you know, delay it? Uh, so thank you very much uh, for uh, for listening, and have a great um, weekend.